Uh, would you turn in your Bibles to... I love our children. <laughs> it is time if children want to head back to children's worship, you can do that. They don't need me to tell them that. <laughs> it's beautiful. And thank you to all of you who help with uh, children's worship and Sunday school. Would you turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 23, and we're going to read verses 39 through 43. We're just going to meditate on verse 43, but we'll, we'll read the whole passage, all right? One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling insults at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Let's pray. Our Father, you are a great and an awesome God, and we love you so much. As we think about the words that this man was able to hear from your lips, today you will be with me in paradise. The comfort that that brought him at the darkest moment of his life is unspeakable. We pray, our God, that you would make our hearts alive to that message this morning. That your spirit would help us to understand and to trust you even more. We pray for children's worship, Lord, and ask that it would be a time in which the children learn to trust you. And that you'll draw them ever nearer to you and that you'll strengthen their faith. And would you do this, Lord, for Jesus' sake? Amen. So, I guess it was a little over a month ago, Robin and I were in Cape Town, uh, South Africa, getting ready to come home. And that's exactly what was going on inside our lives. Uh, it was Saturday, and on Saturday we uh, had to uh, we had our uh, retreat in the morning, and then in between our, our evening session and the morning session, uh, we had to run to a, a nearby town and get our COVID tests. And this one, they just happened to want to take brain matter as they tested. Uh, I, I can to this day feel it behind my eye as they were trying to get all the information. But we had to get it tested because in order to fly, you had to uh, have a test, uh, a negative test within 72 hours of the time your flight takes off. And though we checked with the airlines and they said, yeah, it's just when you first leave the, the first uh, place where, you, where you're leaving, you don't have to worry about the, the layover in uh, uh, Europe. That's not true, is it? <laughs> you, you do have to worry about the layover in Europe. So we found out on our travel back that uh, we had 20 minutes to spare before our 72 hours had expired before we got uh, approved to get on our flight from Frankfurt home. So we almost didn't make it. But we went to get our COVID test as we were planning on getting ready to come home. 
that was in our mind, we began to pack. We had picked up some trinkets for, for kids and some mementos, and, and so we're trying to get out, find a place for all of those into our luggage and trying to figure out how to put everything together. And then we had to go out and take pictures and say goodbye to all the folks that we had seen. And all of that with an eye toward home. We really wanted to come home. We loved it there, but we were ready to come home, and we were doing everything preparing to come home. This last year, we have been considering together the topic of heading home and realizing that heaven is our home. And so we spent some time in the beginning part of the year and just understanding what heaven is. We looked at uh, Revelation chapter 21 and 22, the first part of each of those chapters, the picture that's given to us about heaven, and we began to set our heart on heaven. We spent some time looking at some other descriptions of heaven that we find in the, in the scripture, and then, and then we spent several weeks looking at Daniel to understand how do, we, how do we live for heaven while we live here on earth, and trying to think that through. And then we've wrapped up with our Advent series, once again, focusing on heaven and looking at what is heaven and what is that for us, all with the idea of setting our hearts on heaven. I thought it was appropriate for us to conclude this year's theme with a consideration of the thief on the cross. He was a man who was about to go home, right? He was about to pass from this life. And I think if we look at this message, we're able to see some ways in which we can prepare for home. And I want us to uh, glean that uh, today. So look at the thief for just a moment as, as we continue through our, our introduction of this and, and thinking about what he is facing. <clears throat> First off, he's very much aware that he's about to die. I, from time to time, will meditate on what that moment will be like when I know I'm about to pass from this life. What's that going to be like when I know that death is right here, ready to take me and to be prepared for that? And I think about what this man was facing as he knew what was going on. He knew that he was nailed to the cross. He knew there was no way he could, he could get himself off of that cross and could run away and somehow spare himself. He knew that he was there to be executed to die. There's no other reason, and he's coming to grips with that reality in his own life and facing it at this moment. I think of uh, w one of the more poignant moments I've seen in film is from, uh, of course, it's a Star Trek movie, but uh, called Generations, and it's the one where it moves from the original cast to the next generation cast, and, and Kirk is there, and this is the time that Kirk actually dies. Uh, we thought that couldn't even happen, but he does, um, and as Kirk dies, William Shatner does a remarkable job of at least conveying what I imagine that moment being like. As he realizes that he's going to die and he looks up into the mid-distance and he goes, oh my. And that, that fear, that anticipation, that uncertainty, all of that comes into those two simple words. And it's really powerful. And it just reminds me, the man was aware that that moment was coming. The thief the thief was also aware of his own sin. 
But remember, he had just said to the other uh, criminal, we're here justly. We're here getting what we deserve. We have lived our whole lives moving in this direction. We have sought to be in this place because of the choices that we have made and the crimes that we have committed. We deserve to be here. He knew at that moment his own sin. And if he was aware that he was, he was guilty enough to be condemned to death by man, how much more when he came to grips with the fact that he's dying next to God, is he aware of his guilt before God? And he's facing both of these at this instant. And we're given a picture into what he does. In him, I believe that we can learn how to prepare for home by looking at this life. And so I'd ask you to to join with me and let's consider two ways in which we can do that. And the first is to desire what Jesus offers. To desire what Jesus offers. Jesus was a Jew, that means he was from uh, the tribe of Judah, and he lived in Judah, which uh, was the the southern uh, two tribes, and uh, the Jews that were around him had many expectations upon him, even those who saw that he was the Messiah. They had expectations on him, and they expected him to be doing certain things on their behalf. For instance, the zealots, and these were the the political uh, zealots of that time, had an expectation that Jesus would get rid of Rome, right? That he would eradicate all of the Roman rule and would set them free and would give them some sort of a a, a political uh, sovereignty of their own. And no longer would they be oppressed by these, these Gentiles from outside. The poor had an expectation on Jesus' will that he would remove their suffering and the hardship that they faced. They were hopeful that he would get that out of their lives. And we see that even as we look at uh, John chapter 6, as Jesus has fed the 5,000, and then he gathers the crowd around, and he has this to say to them. He says, Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs. That is to say, that you're not seeking me because you recognize I'm the Messiah because of the miracles that I've done. You have not been shown that I am here with a message from God the Father because of the fact that I have done these miraculous things. No, instead, he says, why are they there? He says, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. You're here because I took away your hunger. And he recognized that. Jesus knew that that expectation was upon him, that he would take away their suffering. He also had the expectation of the criminals there upon the cross. Their expectation was, get us down. Now, why in the world an individual could mock Jesus and think that somehow that connects him enough to Jesus that when Jesus gets himself down, he's going to take me with him? I don't understand. But that was the expectation is, you're going to save our lives. We're all here, and you'll set all of us free. And that was the expectation. And even the disciples had expectations of Jesus, right? We see that in Acts chapter 1, verse 6. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? real focus is, are you going to bring Israel back? Are you going to bring all the 12 tribes and, and make it a reality now? Is that what you're going to do, Lord? They had expectations on him. Now, it's easy for us to look at them and to say, oh, those bad people, right? They had expectations on Jesus different than what he had planned. Aren't they awful? And yet, don't I have expectations on Jesus too that are different than what he has in store for me?
Again, it's our trip, first trip to Malawi, and the, the, the striking contrast of, of serving for 10 weeks in this nation. Uh, at that time, it was the third poorest nation in the world, and watching the faith of these individuals, and then coming home to a prayer meeting, and beginning to see what we expected of God in that prayer meeting, and beginning to see that my own expectations on Jesus are far different than maybe what his plan is to give to me. We think of what we expect from Jesus. We expect a good income, don't we? We expect him to meet our needs. And then some. We really would prefer the and then some. A lot of and then some. And we kind of expect that of him. We expect him to give us good jobs with a good income. We expect him to give us a happy family, right? Without conflict. We expect him to give us good friends who will walk beside us and encourage us upon our way. We expect success from God, do we not? We anticipate that God will simply give us success as long as we work hard, right? And, and trust him. Oh yeah, and trust him. He's going to give us success in whatever we do. We expect from God some level of a positive religious experience. I expect my personal devotion to be fulfilling and emotionally helpful. I expect worship to be awesome, right? I expect him to somehow grant me those things. Reality is, I expect forgiveness from him. I kind of expect a forgiveness that kind of leaves me alone, too, that doesn't require too much change on my part. I want the forgiveness without the transformation, without the change, without the call for me to follow. Sometimes, I really expect sinlessness. I expect God to just kind of take away all my sins and I'm just going to live my life in sinless perfection. These are all expectations that we have on Jesus Christ. But you see, the thief, I believe, saw what Jesus had to offer. And upon seeing what Jesus was really offering, he said, that's what I want. And he cried out to Jesus. And so we too need to desire what Jesus offers, and that is to desire Jesus' presence. He said, truly, I say to you, today you shall be with me. His first promise is his presence, right? And let's not forget how significant that is. When David was being chased by his son who was trying to kill him, David wrote a psalm. And in the middle of that psalm, he said, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Thou art with me. Right? Not, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you'll take it away. Because you'll keep it from coming into my life. Because you'll never allow it to overwhelm me. That isn't what he says at all, is it? No matter how overwhelming it is, no matter how great it is, no matter how dark it may be, I'm okay as long as you're with me, Lord. And it's his presence that gives David the comfort at that moment. It is his presence that Jesus offers to this thief upon the cross. Consider the loneliness of the thief at that moment. The loneliness of death. The loneliness that he has lost his family He's lost his friends. He's been ashamed to all of them. He's lost his government. He's lost his religious connection. There he is, alone, upon a cross. And even there, 
Nobody's paying attention to him anyway. They're all looking at the guy next to him. He's utterly and completely alone and about to close his eyes to everything. And Jesus speaks to him in that moment and says, This day you'll be with me. You won't be alone. But that there is hope. Friends, Jesus' presence is real. We, we often feel alone, don't we? We feel like He's not here. We feel like He's not listening. But let me suggest that we feel that way because we think that way. And because we think that way, we believe that way. Our feelings are not sensors, again, like Star Trek, that go out and find out what's real and somehow send that back to our brain. Our feelings are a reaction to what we're thinking and believing. And because I fill my mind with the idea that I'm alone, I don't fill my mind with the reality that God is with me, but I'm thinking in wrong ways. I begin to believe those wrong ways, and I begin to feel precisely that way. So Jesus says to this man, in this lonely moment, you'll be with me that he might continue to think about that and that it might turn away his feeling of aloneness. Jesus' presence is real. He is with you always. And he is aware of you. His eye is fixed upon you and he delights in you. You are the joy that was set before him that empowered him to endure the cross, despising the shame, till he be seated at the right hand of the Father. He takes joy in being with you. Will you dare to believe that? Will you take that risk? And say, I believe that he's with me. Desire Jesus' presence and also desire what he offers in the freedom from sin. He says, you'll be with me in paradise. Paradise. That's an interesting word, right? What, is, what does it mean? What is paradise? Well, it's used a couple different times in, in the New Testament. It's used uh, in 2 Corinthians, uh, as the Apostle Paul tells his own story. Uh, he says in chapter 12, verse 3, and I know how such a man, whether in body or apart from the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. I believe at this moment, Paul is recalling that moment in which he had been preaching the gospel and the crowd hated him, took him outside of the city and stoned him. I believe that it's at that point that he was taken up into paradise and he was given a vision of paradise. And what is this paradise? Again, the question still comes to us. I think we get a little better picture when we look at Revelation chapter 2 and verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Oh, that tells me something about the paradise of God, right? It's where the tree of life is. The tree of life. We remember the tree of life, right? Genesis chapter 2, we saw the, the tree of life. We see it again in Genesis chapter 3. The tree of life, it was in Eden, right? Now, what happened when man sinned? The tree of life was taken away, right? No. The tree of life remained. It was man who was taken away. We were the ones who were removed out of paradise, and the angel was uh, stationed there with a flaming sword to make sure we don't come back in and eat from the tree of life. 
The tree of life is in Eden. That's the idea. That's the picture that he gives us. The tree of life dwells in that place where sin does not. That place on the earth where the moment sin came, man was removed from it, that it might remain in its sinlessness. The invitation to paradise is an invitation to be free from sin. To be free from the effects of sin. Think about some of the effects of sin that we, we face on a daily basis that one day we'll be free from. First is conflict. Conflict. It's all around us, isn't it? We've, we've uh, talked a little bit about that already today and the divisions that we see at every level. But there's conflict in places that we, we hate it and it drives us crazy. And it's conflict that sometimes escalates to such a point that we see of, of the, the mass killings that are around us. Fear. Fear is an effect of sin. As a matter of fact, the very first emotion that you see after man sins is fear. For Adam and Eve were afraid because they had sinned against God. And so they hid themselves. And so fear has come into our lives because of sin. Futility. Have you ever noticed that things don't work as well as you'd like them to in your work? <laughs> if you don't say yes, I want your job. <laughs> Because it's, it's awful. Well, it's that way because God designed it that way. He said he's going to make it that way so that we would long for something better. We'd long for when that's taken away. And pain. The pain that we experience. And there's physical pain. That's a part of it. And yes, that's, that's something that's very real and I want us to be aware of that'll be gone. But you know, isn't there a greater pain of the loss of loved ones? Think of the, the, the number of people that we've had to, to pray for who've lost loved ones this last year. Daryl and I have talked about it on a number of occasions. Neither of us have experienced as many funerals as we have in this year. Never. You know, for me, in pastoring as many years as I have in a, in a church um, this size, to see the number of funerals, um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm astounded. I remember a few years ago, uh, Dr. Michael Rogers was talking about their church of over 1,200 uh, in Lancaster, Westminster Press, and, and he was amazed that they'd had like four, four funerals. Um, and, and I thought, wow, and we, I know earlier in the year there were 13 that we had had by, by June. And just a lot, and it just, frankly, it hurts, doesn't it? I really appreciated the prayer, because the reality is we rejoice when our loved ones go home, and yet it still hurts like the dickens. It's just awful. It's just painful. And one day that'll be gone. And we long for that. The effects of sin are going to be taken away. But not just the effects, the presence of sin will be taken away. Think about that for just a moment. We have never lived our lives for a single instance without sin at our elbow. Right? I take that from a, a chapter in The Enemy Within by Chris Lundgaard um, in which he, he says, evil at my elbow. And the reality that no matter where I turn, sin is just right there all the time doing its work, tempting me and drawing me and pushing me. And one day that'll be gone. I, I really appreciate the way that Chris uh, expresses this uh, in that chapter that I, that I just mentioned. He says, We can also think of law in the way we speak of laws of nature. Gravity, for example, is a law that bends things in its direction. It perfectly conforms us to its commands. Gravity is not a law as an idea or an outward precept, but a force that can make objects obey its will. In this sense, 
Every urge and inclination in us is a law. Hunger is a law. Thirst, sexual drive, fear. Each impels us to fulfill its demands, and each brings a force to bear on us, to bow us into submission. Indwelling sin works like this. Enticing, threatening, even bullying. So Paul calls it a law to get us to see that it is powerful even in the lives of believers and that it constantly works to press us into its evil mold. Isn't that a helpful picture of the way that sin works on us? And isn't it, don't you, as you, as you read those words, doesn't that resonate with your heart and your experience? And say, yeah. That's what I've experienced. That's what I've faced in my life. I have seen sin working in just this way as it compels me to follow its wishes. And one day, my friends, Jesus' offer is that we will be free from the presence of sin. It will no longer be at our elbow. I want to prepare for home, don't you? To prepare for home, it means we need to first, we need to desire what Jesus offers. What does he offer us? He offers us his presence and he offers us freedom from sin. Sign me up. I want to desire that. And then I need to learn to rest in Jesus' provision. To rest in his provision. I'm not sure, I don't know if there's been any scientific studies to be able to prove it, but I I have an idea that it is conceivable that the most tense person in the world is the parent of a teenager while teaching the teenager how to drive. Every adult here is going to be saying, Amen. Every teenager who's been taught to drive is going to say, Amen and Amen. We've seen that from them. Good night. Why don't they lighten up? I can attest that I have been driving for 41 years now, 42 years now. And when I ride with my mom, she's still the tensest person in the world. (laughs) It hasn't gotten any easier for her. What makes us so tense in that moment? No control, right? right? I got no pedals on my side. I got no steering wheel on my side. I got no eject button to get them out and me get over, right? I'm just completely at the mercy of this other individual. And it's difficult. And frankly, we feel it sometimes when we ride with other adults too. There's that, that tension, that, that, that fear that's there because we have no control. I think there's an element in which isn't faith when you kind of release control? Isn't that a part of what faith is? Is, I'm just going to let go of it. I don't have it. Because the secret is, control is a delusion anyway. We don't actually ever have it. And when we come to that point and say, Lord, I'm just going to give up trying to have it and just give it over to you, that he's the one who's going to be in control. That's the moment that we have faith. The thief on the cross had no control at all, did he? It had been taken out to the point where his hands and and feet had been nailed to this cross. He doesn't have control over his physical body. He's got no control. He doesn't have control as to when he's going to die. 
He just has to wait for it. All control has been taken away from him. And yet even still, he cries out to God. And I believe that there must have been some level of desperation when he was first nailed upon his cross and was lifted up in its stand. And can you just imagine how much you would want to fight and you'd want to get away and the recognition that you just can't. And that desperation was filling his soul until he looked beside him. And he saw the Lord of glory and he cried out to God to care for him. It was at that moment that he rested in Jesus' provision. And he was able to face that moment where he had no control. Rest in Jesus' provision. Trust that Jesus hears your cry. The thief cries for a relationship, first and foremost. Compare verse 39 and verse 42. In verse 39, we see the the one criminal saying, um, he's hurling abuse at Christ, and he said, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. What's he want? He doesn't care about a relationship. He says, just get me off of this cross. Just save me. That's all I care about. Save me from this death. Save me from this torture. Save me from this execution. Save me from this moment. That's all he wanted was save me right now. On the other hand, the thief said, remember me. When you come into your glory, you who are the Messiah, you who are the King of Kings, you who will be exalted at the right hand of the Father, Will you have some remembrance of me? Will you allow me to come into your mind? Will you be cognizant of my existence and of my value to you? Please, Lord Jesus, remember me. This is his cry. It's for a relationship. And what does Jesus say? You know what the first word out of his mouth was? Truly. You know what the Greek word is? You do now. Amen. Jesus said, Amen. He said, Will you remember me? He said, Amen. I like to listen to sports radio. Um, not as much now that ESPN isn't around, but anyway, um, actually, not as much since Mike and Mike are off the air, but anyway, that's uh, my plug for that uh, old program. Um, But one of the things I notice in in listening to sports talk radio is that the guys aren't always Christians. Uh, The guys and gals, one of the gals I listen to is, but uh, usually they're not Christians. And yet I still hear them say amen. Someone will make a point and their response is amen. Amen. I'm like, amen. I thought we only in Christian circles said that, not in Presbyterian churches at all, right? And And yet there they are. They say amen. What are they saying? They're saying, I believe that. That's truth. Preach it, although they may not say that, but, uh, but sometimes they actually do. Um, but they're saying that's truth, because that's what it means. It's true. It means I believe it. It's the root word in, in Hebrew, amen, for faith, or it's truth. And those two are connected. Isn't that fascinating? So the first thing Jesus says, he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus says, amen. Amen. Preach it. In other words, that's, that's a reality. That's going to happen. Yes, indeed. And the one who said amen is the same one who said, let there be light. And what happened? There was light. There had to be light. Nothing else ever could have happened at that moment, right? Could anything else happen when the Lord God Almighty 
says to a man's request, remember me. Amen. He remembered him. And he took it a step farther. In addition, you'll be with me today in paradise. Do you ever feel ignored by God? Do you ever pray and you feel that your prayer is just being going up into emptiness, into nothingness? You're not sure that he pays attention and he hears? Larry Crabb wrote about this in his book, Shattered Dreams, uh, which I found to be one of the most mature Christian books I've ever read, in which he, he deals with the reality of his own sense of, of, of God's attentiveness to him. As he decided to write down his six best friends, and he wrote them down and he looked at it and he realized he hadn't put Jesus on that list. And he's kind of trying to figure out why. And he said, what do these six people have in common? He said, well, these six people have in common is that they all do things for me. He kind of summarized it. He said, you know, if I needed to clean my garage on Saturday, these six people would show up. And he said, I'm not sure Jesus would. Because we wouldn't recognize him showing up the way we would want it to happen, right? And so we felt somewhat ignored and we feel that way because we don't necessarily get the answer to prayers the way we want, in the moment we want. Um, just before his death, and I mean like a couple weeks before his death, Rich Mullins uh, recorded a, what was going to be, I, I forget the word, but uh, wanted it to be his next album, wanted it to be called the, the Jesus Record or the Jesus Album. And he recorded uh, one song in particular, at a, a small abandoned church on the Navajo Reservation, which is an old tape recorder, cassette tape recorder. You know, you press uh, uh, play and record. Um, if you're probably under 40, you have no idea what in the world I'm talking about, but the rest of us are, are aware, and we have rocked out to that kind of cassette tape over and over. But, so he hit that, and he just sat in this lonely church, and he sang this song called Hard to Get, which captures that play in our lives between we believe and we don't believe, right? Because that's the reality of our experience. And I want to read just a little bit about this uh, uh, song for just a, a couple moments. And I want us to hear that and, and allow it to resonate in our own souls. Um, do you who live in heaven hear the prayers of those of us who live on earth, who are afraid of being left by those we love and who get hardened in the hurt? Do you remember when you lived down here where we all scraped to find the faith to ask for daily bread? Did you forget about us after you had flown away? He begins to resolve it with these words, and he says, I know you bore our sorrows, and I know you feel our pain, and I know that it would not hurt any less even if it could be explained, and I know that I'm only lashing out at the one who loves me most, and after I figure this out, this somehow... What I really need to know is, do you who live in eternity hear the prayers of those of us who live in time? We can't see what's ahead and we cannot get free from what we left behind. I'm reeling from these voices that keep screaming in my ears, all these words of shame and doubt, blame and regret. I can't see how you're leading me unless you've led me here to where I'm lost enough to let myself be led. And so you've been here all along, I guess. It's just your ways, and you're just plain hard to get.
And I read that and I say, Amen. I've experienced that. And I assume you have too. And the thief was feeling that. And what did he do? He called out to Jesus for a relationship. Will you ask him for a relationship? Will you first of all ask him, Lord Jesus, forgive me for I've sinned. And to simply make that request, knowing that the promise in Christ is yes and amen. Trust that Jesus hears your cry and trust that his salvation is now. Jesus said, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Today. Same word was used in Matthew chapter 6, 11 when he says, give us this day our daily bread. Think about the significance of that. He is not saying, give us the bread we need yesterday. He does not say, give us today the, day, the bread we need tomorrow. Do not give us tomorrow the bread that we need. He's saying, give us today, this day, this moment, right now, where I am, here, now, give us the, what we need. That's what today means, right now. He uses it in Luke chapter 2, verse 11. This is from the story of the birth of Christ. This day has been born to you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Today he's been born. I remember in the fall of 1982, I went for a walk with Robin in City Park in Fort Collins, Colorado. As we were walking through the park, we'd been listening to David Meese. We loved Meese's to pieces. But anyway, um, we, we loved his music, and uh, he had had an album come out that year that was called uh, um, Are You Ready? And we'd been listening to that song, Are You Ready? And David Meese said he wrote that because he wanted to think about the second coming of Christ. And it, it says, Are You Ready? If he came here tonight, are you ready? Are you ready if he comes? And Robin looked at me and said, are you ready? And I said, I don't think so. I think I've got to get my life together a little better. I, I, I think I need to you know, get rid of some bad stuff in my life and I, I need to, you know, some things I need to do that are just, I, I just need to do it better. Glad she's not here. And I looked over and I saw her crying. And she realized I wasn't saved. It was a powerful moment for me to come to realize that too. I'm not saved. I'm not ready. What do I do? I didn't ask her that. I wasn't real good at asking for help at that time. But the question comes to you, are you ready? What if he comes before this service is over? Are you ready? Trust him now, today, this day, right now. Trust Him. Don't try to fix your life. Don't try to get yourself all together. Don't try to, well, I've got to set aside these things and I've got to start doing these things. None of that. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't wait. Right now. Right now. Come to Him. And say, Lord Jesus, will you receive me? Will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? Will you forgive me for the sins which I've committed? Will you receive me 
into your kingdom. Come to him now. We are just aliens and strangers in this world. We're just passing through. I know it feels like this is where we're supposed to be until we start paying attention. We realize we are absolutely not made for here. We're made for something greater, for something way better. The reality is heaven is our home. That's where we belong. That's where God wants us to be. Friends, prepare for home. Start preparing now. It's very simple. The way to prepare is to desire what Jesus offers and rest in what he provides. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, just as the thief looked to you and cried out, remember me when you come into your kingdom, we cry out now and we ask, Lord Jesus, remember us. Help us, O oh God, to prepare for home. To prepare ourselves even now, desiring what you offer, not demanding what we want. And help us, Lord, to rest in the perfect provision that you have given. Lord, I pray for this congregation as we spent this last year considering heading home. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to live above the pressures of this life. And that as we do, you might use this church to call men, women, and children from our community, from our country, and from around the world to salvation in the name of Jesus. Amen.